This week on Myths and Legends, there are three love stories from Japan. We'll see that if someone wants you to literally walk into fire to be with them, maybe reevaluate that relationship. And that if your partner's ex is a demon, that might be something worth talking about ahead of time. The creature this week is a one-eyed deer who really wants you to take the hint and stop shooting it. This is Myths and Legends, episode 262, Fatal Attraction. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, there are three stories of love gone wrong from Japan. On the first, we'll see a father walking with his son, as the young man is going to meet the woman who will be his wife for the first time. But what the son doesn't know is that his father has a secret. Kind of a lot of them, actually. We'll jump in mid-journey. The father walked with his son. The young man was on the way to meet his wife the woman who would be his wife. I never thought this day would come, son, the man said. The son smiled, then cocked his head up. That's a weird thing to say. He was getting married. He would have hoped parents had planned for this day, looked forward to it, anticipated grandchildren. The father laughed. Oh, no, of course not. The young man stopped. Wait, why? Oh, because you're, oh, because you're not very good looking, the father said. The son said, what? What did his father mean? The father said, I thought you knew. He was surprised this was a revelation. The boy was not good looking. He loved the boy. The boy's mother loved him, but they didn't love him for his looks. The young man said it would be weird if they did, and all this was very shocking. He knew he wasn't like a model, but he thought he was about average. (laughs) Yeah, for an oni, or maybe like a very good-looking bird, the father added, then gasped. Oh, he put the son's hood up and smiled at the messenger. Hi, you must be from the rich man, the father asked. The one with the beautiful bride we're meeting today? The messenger caught his breath, then asked if this was him, the, quote, fairest youth in all the land. The young man turned to his father, who grasped the base of the hood tighter. The father smiled nervously and nodded. Yep, this was him. Best looking guy in Japan, right here. The servant looked to the hooded figure. Um, he didn't know if this was out of place, but... Could he have just, like, a little peek, a little taste? Something to tell his grandchildren about someday, that he met the best-looking guy in Japan? The father gripped the hood tighter. Now? Really? In the afternoon sun? Was the servant joking? Did the servant have any idea what that would do to his son's buttery, creamy skin? The audacity of such an ask. He would talk to the servant's master about having the man beaten. The servant bowed and took off in a run back home. When the pair was alone again, the son lowered 
the hood. Dad. The fairest youth in all the land. Seriously, if he didn't think the young man was good looking, why was he trying to sell him to this noble as the best looking guy in Japan? Like, the young man didn't think he was ugly. He wasn't ugly. But he knew that this was kind of overselling things a bit. Huh? Dad? The father said, don't worry. He had a plan. I'm sorry, I can barely see your face out here, the young woman said to the son. He mumbled that, yeah, he guessed that was the point. They were having a moonlit dinner out by a pond. Walking along the road, the boy had been traveling with his father until long after dusk. Luckily, it was a full moon. The dad set up a date for the young people, the allegedly uber handsome guy and the rich daughter, so that the dads could talk business. So, what's your dad do? The young woman asked. Oh, he... he gambles, the son said. If he couldn't be honest about not being literally the most handsome man in the world, he would be honest about that. Oh, that's... wow. Is he good? She asked. She wanted to know if he was more the medieval Japanese equivalent to the, like, World Series of Poker or that person sitting by the slot machine feeding it his life savings. The young man said, eh, little column A, little column B. The girl laughed. Well, she wasn't marrying the young man for his money, just his looks. She said she knew that sounded bad, but she had literally no control over it. So, more sake? The son watched his father shake hands with the rich merchant and laughed. Definitely. The pair continued their moonlight visits for the next week or so. Until, finally, the day came. Or the night. The father pulled for a moonlit wedding, and the pair was married. The young man was stressing, though. His lie would be revealed soon. Very soon. The morning after was coming, and with the sunrise, his new wife would see him. He didn't think he was ugly. But he wasn't Japan's next top model. He could be executed for this. The young man's father told him to relax, relax, it would be okay. No son of his was getting executed. He had planned it all out. See those guys over there? The father pointed to a table full of his gambling buddies. They were going to help out. It was fine. Come sunrise, the son wouldn't just be a member of the rich man's family. He would be the hero of it. The wedding celebration continued, and around midnight, the couple went to the woman's room. Some other stuff happened, and in the early hours of the morning, they reclined in each other's arms. The young woman was asleep, and the young man was about to follow when the house began to shake. They both sat up in bed. What, what was that? The ceiling above the young woman's bed began to tremble. Dust motes sprinkled down. It felt like the very foundation was being rocked back and forth. Fairest youth in all the land, a demonic voice bellowed. The young man froed his brow and rose from bed, asking his young wife to stay there. He would confront whatever this was. He stepped forward. 
He was the one they called the fairest youth in all the land. What did this thing want? The family filled the doorway of the couple's room. No, why did he answer? The young man shook his head. He didn't know it seemed like a brave thing to do. The daughter of this house, the ogre above yelled, has been mine for three years. I want to know who you think you are sleeping here. The young man was filled with indignation. I'm her husband, and who are you? The oni in the attic laughed. Ho, 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 ho. The boy should watch how he speaks. He doesn't know what evil the monster is capable of. The young man looked back to his wife, and then up to the ceiling. You, you need to leave, he bellowed at the demon. And then he stood up taller. Yeah, the oni needed to leave. Whatever had happened here, whatever the oni claimed happened, it didn't matter now. He wouldn't harass this young woman anymore. Go. Now. The young woman, his wife, shrugged. She had no idea what was going on. And the young man looked to his in-laws. They made a fist that said, yeah, you tell him. There was a long silence. When the Oni spoke again, it was grim this time. It would go. But the young man could almost hear a Grinch smile curling on its face. But I have one thing to ask you before I leave, the Oni said. And answer honestly. I have powers you can't even comprehend. The young man swallowed hard. Okay. Which do you cherish more? Your life or your looks? The young man, the groom, said, Wait. Oh, really? The father-in-law rushed over to him. Say looks, say looks. Who cares what you look like if you're dead? His new wife pleaded the same. Looks didn't matter to her. Really, she didn't care as long as he was alive. The young man groaned, oh, really? They thought that this was because he was debating whether or not he cared about his looks because he was the fairest youth in all the land or his life. That wasn't it. He said, yeah, he, he valued his good looks more than his life because he was really the fairest youth in all the land. Yeah, looks. Final answer. Then it is your looks you shall lose, the monster called out, following it with a horrible sucking sound. The youth covered up his face. No, no, not his superlative looks. Anything but the perfect symmetry of his face and jawline. You monster, you literal monster. There was silence above. The monster had, apparently, gone. The young wife ran to her husband, taking him into her arms. His in-laws were busy trying to find a lamp, so they didn't notice the young man's father and a dozen of his gambling buddies, the ones that shook the house, having climbed down from the attic and now rushing across the courtyard to the forest in the moonlight. They were celebrating their successful fake-out, with all of their voices and shaking contributing to the monster that lived above the house. The father-in-law returned with the lamp and turned to his son-in-law to face him. Oh, oh no. He was so sorry. It, 
It was horrible. The young man sighed. Oh no, his beautiful looks. The father-in-law said he had no idea that this part of the house was haunted and that this monster had laid claim to his daughter. He begged the young man's forgiveness of what his ignorance had done. Done to his face. Oh, it was chilling. The young man said, yeah, no, it's, it's okay. Please stop talking. His wife studied him and shrugged. She didn't think he looked too bad. She actually kind of liked him. The father shook his head with a shudder. Well, she was a trooper. First thing tomorrow, he would get started on construction for a new house. They would live separately. <sighs> Can't have him frightening the servants. And the son shouldn't worry about working. Nope. He would pay for the man to live in his own estate. In comfort, as a thank you for taking that terrible, terrible burden for the family. The original story is very subtly called The Ugly Son. I like the idea of the son not being ugly, just sort of average looking. But because the father-in-law was expecting a male model, and the father is just kind of horrible, they both saw the kid as ugly. Anyway, that was a fun one. Next up, it's a story of love resulting in mass death. It's the story of the fire quest. But that will be right after this. Why are you here? The moth said to the dragonfly as they buzzed up to the lotus. Uh, the same reason everyone else is, the insect said, pointing to the swarm bouncing around the lotus flower. Hassling the firefly queen about marriage, the moth asked, holding out a leg, expecting a high five. Oh yeah, the dragonfly smacked his buddy's leg. It had only been a few days, so basically several lifetimes for bugs, but there was a new type of bug in town. A firefly. And yeah, she was hot, puns. She was irresistible to all the bugs. and. Because they all wanted to marry her, they respectfully packed her lotus house full every night, hassling her nonstop. The firefly queen flashed a wry smile to all her suitors. Hello, boys. The front row almost fainted when she revealed her fiery abdomen. Wow. She told them that it had taken her some time, but she finally figured out who she would like to marry. The dragonfly yelled over the crowd to Moth. It was him. He had dragon in his name. Or rather, I've determined how I will choose my king, the firefly queen said. The hundreds of bugs buzzed even more intensely. She said that she had been blessed by the gods with fire in her abdomen. And she could only be with a mate who had that same fire. The bugs in attendance clamored. Yes, finally, a goal. What was the goal? The queen of the fireflies smiled again. Fire. The first bug who brought back fire would be her husband. All the male bugs who could not remotely take the hint that she was not that into them froze for a half second before buzzing out of the lotus flower. Fire! 
fire. They had to get fire. They spread the word to all their friends and family. They were marrying the Firefly Queen. Fire, the first bug to bring back fire for the Firefly Queen, would be her husband. The Queen, alone, back in her flower, breathed. She knew the outcome. Bug after bug, moth, dragonfly, mayfly, they would flutter toward the flame like thirsty little Icaruses, and they would catch fire. Their passion would literally burn them up because no bug could hold a flame except for the firefly. Then the firefly queen heard a sound. She turned, and it was a bug. A bug who brought her fire. He unfurled his wings to show her his abdomen. He was like her, a firefly too. Together, the pair was the origin of all the fireflies we see today. And today, people still need to cover flames and lights because the generations of moths, mayflies, and dragonflies that didn't learn from their predecessors are still trying to get with the queen of the fireflies. There's a lesson here. Don't let your passion burn you up. Wait for the person that's right for you. But most of all, take the hint. Don't be a creepy weirdo trying to force a relationship that just isn't there. So yeah, the next time you see a moth going toward a bug zapper, just know that it was a sleazy dude trying to force the queen of the fireflies into marriage. The final story today is one of a samurai still pining over the lost love of his youth. Hagiwara grinned as he gripped his battle door, basically like an early badminton racket. He would show them. He was playing some other samurai, and ladies were around cheering them on. It was the festival of the new year, and the whole city of Edo, what would come to be known as Tokyo, was relaxed. Relaxed, except for Hagiwara, who was about to spike the shuttlecock and win the game. He leapt, his robes fluttered, and misjudged, well, everything. He didn't miss the shuttlecock. Definitely not. He slammed it hard, and it bounced off his battle door in a wholly unexpected direction. It flew over the bamboo fence, shoulders slumped, and someone pulled out another. They all turned to Hagiwara, who was already halfway over the fence. What was he doing? They had extras. He said he didn't want an extra one. This one was dove-colored and gilded. It was his good one. He would be right back. Before they could protest further, he was over the fence and looking for the birdie. He found the spot that it should have fallen, but it wasn't there. His friends yelled out for him, but he told them to keep playing. He was still looking. He beat the bushes with his battle lore, as he heard them play a few more points. Finally, they told him they were going to such and such place to get something to eat. Was he coming? He yelled back that he was. He would meet them there. He heard their footsteps trail off, looked up, and found the birdie. O Oyone? The woman holding the gilded birdie dropped it. 
almost as shocked to see Hagiwara as he was to see her. The two looked at each other. Both of them said, I thought you were dead. Hagiwara's hand trembled as he walked through the streets of Edo with Oyone. He was on the verge of tears. He couldn't believe they were alive. He thought back to the day that he met Oyone and Osuyu. Oyone was the servant to her lady, Osuyu. She had been 16 then. Both she and the samurai were. Hagiwara was walking along with his physician friend, who had to check on the daughter of a rich family. When Hagiwara saw Osuyu, his world stopped. They were left reasonably alone and talked. And quickly, their attraction blossomed into love, facilitated by Oyone, Osuyu's maid. Hagiwara visited her in secret at first, but he was nearly found out. So he tried to find another way, but it was improper for him to visit on his own. He waited for the doctor to make another visit, but in the time since his first visit, Osuyu had reportedly grown ill. The physician didn't want anyone else entering the house and making things worse. Months passed, and eventually, Hagiwara couldn't take it. He found the physician. He couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. He had been sick since he saw her at the beginning of spring. He needed to see her again. The physician ground his teeth. That wouldn't be possible. But now that the samurai had said something, it made sense. The samurai paused. What made sense? Oh, why Osuyu died, he said. Then he smiled and breathed a literal sigh of relief. Oh, all this time he thought it was a misdiagnosis. It was a broken heart. Wow, awesome. Then he saw the downcast look of the young man. Well, he guessed it was his mistake to have brought the dashing samurai at all. I mean, look at you. She died for love of you. Oh, if only I had been born so handsome that girls died for love of me. <laughs> well, we must leave the dead to the dead, he said, slapping the samurai on the back. Hagiwara didn't leave the dead for the dead, though. He inscribed Osuyu's name upon a mortuary tablet and placed it in a shrine in his house, setting offerings before it and reciting prayers. Time passed, though, and though his love never faded, his memory of Osuyu did. He grew up, completed his training, and moved to a different neighborhood of Edo. Now, though, he was walking along the street with a ghost from his past. Oyone, the maid, was said to have died with her lady. And you never thought that was suspicious, Oyone said to the samurai. The man said, well, he just assumed Oyone loved her lady and couldn't bear not to serve her even if it meant death. Yeah, now that he was saying it out loud, it did feel a little contrived. What happened then? Oyone said that it was simply Osuyu's father. He discovered the relationship, the love that she felt for the samurai. Osuyu's aunt made arrangements for the girl to be moved far away, quickly and without notice. 
She paid off the doctor to tell Hagiwara the lie. They were told that Hagiwara had died the same way, out of love for Osuyu. It had broken her. And though she moved on, she never forgot about Hagiwara. They stopped in front of a mansion, one set apart from the rest of the buildings. The door slid open, and the one true love of Hagiwara's life, Osuyu, stood in front of him. They flew into each other's arms. It was like they hadn't stopped talking for nearly 10 years. In fact, they talked until the sun began to rise. And both Hagiwara and Osuyu were delighted to find that the wonderful kids they had known had grown into marvelous adults. They rekindled their love. When the first lights of dawn began to find their way over the nearby houses, Hagiwara told them that he had to go. He had duties for his daimyo. Would he see her again? He needed to see her again. They did see each other again. Each night, by the light of her peony lantern, they found their way to Hagiwara's house. He was far from his parents. Her father was regularly away on business. They were free. They would find a way to marry, of course. But they were young and in love and spending time getting... reacquainted. Hagiwara would secret Osuyu and Oyone into his home. And he and Osuyu would have some... alone time. And the lady and her maid would leave before first light, making their way back to their mansion on the other side of town. Hagiwara's neighbor laid in bed. He had been out of town for some months, but it was nice to be back in his own pl- Then, he heard the sound of Hagiwara's nighttime activities. Wow, it sounded like the samurai had made a new friend in the neighbor's time away from the city. The man usually went to bed a little after dusk to be up for his work. Sounded like he wasn't doing much sleeping tonight. After a little while, things calmed down on the other side of the wall, and the neighbor sat listening to the pair talk. Oh, wow. Guess you could say things are getting pretty serious. She talked about how she was going to marry the man, even if her father didn't approve. And from the way she talked, the neighbor could tell that she... she was a noble. Okay, well, he wasn't getting any sleep tonight. He could wait until the following morning or night or whenever he saw the samurai out with his lady on the street to see them. Or he could climb the tree outside of his window and pat on over, poke a hole in the wall and see the pair in bed. He wouldn't be able to sleep until he solved this mystery, so it really was for his own well-being that he needed to spy on the couple. In bed. He quietly slid the window to the side, crawled on all fours across the branch, and nearly fell out of the tree when he saw the couple. He was expecting two attractive people, well, you know. And he was half right, in that there was one attractive person, his neighbor, Hagiwara the samurai, but the woman, she, Hagiwara, was cradling a skeleton. What bits of flesh clung to her naked bones were green, gray, and reeking. Hagiwara didn't notice, though. 
and ran his hands along the slime on her spine in the back of her ribcage, kissing her non-existent lips and long decaying teeth while he swept back the hair that still clung to the skin that still clung to her skull. The neighbor nearly vomited, but forced himself to get it together. He didn't want the skeleton, the ghost, whatever it was, to see him. He slunk back to his room and didn't sleep the rest of the night. We'll see what happens when the samurai learns what the neighbor saw. But that, once again, will be right after this. Hi, uh, neighbor, Hagiwara, the samurai, said when he arrived home the following afternoon. You're back, the samurai asked, and then turned to the neighbor's friend. Who's this? The neighbor said that this man was a priest, and they all needed to have a talk. The samurai paced his house after the neighbor told him what he saw the night before. Impossible. The priest said that that might be the case, but there were things that he could do. Charms and wards that he could put out, so that she couldn't cross the threshold of his home. If she was truly not living, otherwise it would be normal. The neighbor pleaded with the samurai, honestly, he just wanted to be creepy and spy on them in an intimate moment. If she wasn't a skeleton ghost, he wouldn't have said anything. He would be at their window tonight. But he wanted to look out for the samurai and himself because he didn't want to live next to a skeleton ghost. The samurai grimaced. There were a lot of things wrong with what he just said, but he could see that the neighbor was honest and scared. The priest spoke up, saying that if she was truly a ghost, then she was dangerous to him. Signs of death would start to appear on his face. The positive would always flow toward the negative and Hagiwara would be consumed by her, even if she didn't want to do it. The priest looked to the floor. He had no reason to lie to the man. He could see the marks of death on him already. Hagiwara needed to stop this. It was killing him. Hagiwara sighed and sat back. Okay, okay, they could do it, but they would see they would see that she wasn't one of the dead. The priest forced a smile. He earnestly hoped that that was the case. She didn't come by that night. It was strange, but he didn't let himself think that she was one of the dead. He imagined that it was another plot by the father or the aunt, that they had discovered Osu's nightly excursions and were trying, again, to thwart their love. Early the next morning, the samurai went to his old neighborhood, Shitaya. He found Osuyu's old house. It was a mansion. He remembered it from the first time he had approached with a physician. The liar. He announced himself and waited. And waited. Eventually, an elderly servant found him at the door. Someone Hagiwara remembered from his youth. The old man told the samurai politely, that he was not welcome here. Hagiwara narrowed his eyes. Why? 
because he wasn't good enough to marry their daughter? The elderly servant sighed. No, because the samurai had killed his master's daughter. Okay, please. He asked the samurai to follow him. Hagiwara did, on a path that wove around ponds, flowers, gardens, until, on a secluded, shady spot, he found what he feared most. A headstone. Two, actually. One for Osuyu, and one for Oyone. The servant explained that this was where they had been for the last ten years, since Hagiwara left Osuyu with a broken heart and never returned. The maid followed her lady soon after. Her lord father couldn't even bear to have them cremated, so they were laid to rest here, in this peaceful place. Tears fell as the samurai thanked the man, seeing the true final resting place of his beloved. She had died. All those years ago, she had died for love of him. He took a different way home. He found her mansion, the place Oyone had taken him after he found her on New Year's Day. It was abandoned. By the look of it, it had been so for years. The walls were rotting and falling apart. It, too, had been a lie. The priest tried to explain it to him that evening. It wasn't his fault. For their love to be so strong, to transcend death, it had to have existed before they were alive. He imagined that they had been in love for a long time preceding their current life. In three or four past existences, they were drawn to each other. And it wasn't out of maliciousness that she now visited him. Still, for the following few nights, he needed to stay in his home, surrounded by a special fabric with sacred scrolls posted and reciting the sutras. That was the only way he could sever the bond that existed between them. But the priest didn't know something about the samurai. Even though it could mean his death, he didn't want to sever the bond between him and Osuyu. He only felt alive when he was with Osuyu, and in the years since she died, he had been drifting, as if in a dream, until he saw her again. So, that night, at midnight, as he sat half-heartedly rocking and mumbling the sutras, he heard the footsteps outside. He heard the door open. He didn't know that a servant, one of his, had switched the golden sacred image with a copper one to sell the real one. So, Osuyu could enter. He saw her, her ghostly visage, hovering just beyond the curtains. And he parted them, set down the sutras, and faced his beloved. She looked him over. They had pledged themselves to each other for life. All those years ago, Hagiwara took her hand. He told her he remembered the pledge he had made. He had never forgotten. The pair embraced. Hagiwara's neighbor knocked on the door the following day. He was just checking up on the man. Did Hagiwara need help? 
He noticed the samurai's windows were closed when he was outside them, being weird. Haguara? The samurai didn't answer, and the neighbor shrugged it off. At first, days passed, though, and he still hadn't heard from Hagiwara. He got some friends together, and they went in the samurai's home, and inside, they found everything in its place, with a light film of dust, but no Hagiwara. The curtains were still hung, and the sutras were on the floor, but the man was nowhere. The neighbor looked after his place for a few weeks, until the priest came by asking to see how things went for the samurai and severing himself from his deceased beloved. He was troubled to find that no one had heard from the man since that night and asked about the name of the girl. The neighbor helpfully gave it to him. He remembered that name being shouted. A lot. It wasn't an easy ask of the young woman's father to have his daughter's body exhumed. But when the coffin was opened and everyone else looked away in disgust, the priest's suspicions were confirmed. In the grave was the long-decayed corpse of Osuyu, but in her arms was the much more recent corpse of the samurai, Hagiwara. The pair held each other, together at last, and the last thing on Hagiwara's face was a smile. There are so many different versions of the story. In some, the samurai is a lonely widower. In others, it's not a samurai, but a student. In the closest version to the one I told, he doesn't go back to the grave, but they find him in his house, entwined with the skeleton. I really like this story, and I thought it was a tragic, mildly creepy, and ultimately kind of beautiful story of love overcoming the grave, but not in a good way, and it was kind of perfect for this show. If you're looking for something else to listen to, there's a new episode of Scoundrel out, of course, but we also released a new episode of Fictional last week, one that involves people self-isolating and speaking to each other only over video calls and text messaging, a landmark, prescient science fiction story published in 1909 that somehow predated 2020 by 111 years. Check out Fictional by searching for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts or by following the link in the show notes. creature this week is the Lampong, from the Philippines. The Lampong is the guardian of the forest. And before you say that there are a lot of guardians of the forest that are more than happy to get people lost and eat them, well, you're right. But the Lampong is one of the rare creatures willing to put themselves out there on the front lines. It's a mythological dwarf from the Philippines, but when it's spotted, it appears to be a one-eyed white deer, which is apparently a big deal for hunters. I mean, I don't hunt, but I imagine bagging a one-eyed mythological deer would give you some pretty hefty bragging rights. At least, that's what the Lampong is hoping for. You see, the normally bright-eyed, long-bearded man in a black, two-peaked hat listens for hunters, one's going after deer, and transforms himself into a glowing one-eyed deer. And 
unlike the Narnia native white stag, will not lead you on a wild hunt through the forest before depositing you back in your preteen World War II self. Nope, the Lampong will sit there and take it. Going full Duncan Idaho, it invites you to shoot at it, while it gives the other deer time to flee. Exactly five times. It doesn't matter if they are bullets or arrows, you get five tries with Lampong to realize that shooting at the one-eyed deer that appears to be unaffected by your attacks is a bad idea before you experience the consequences of your poor decision-making. On shot five, the creature will turn into a duende, someone we talked about a long time ago, and things will get very bad for you. Either the hunter will become the hunted, and you'll be chased down and eviscerated, or you'll get a fever, and parts of you will start swelling until you die. So yeah, when hunting deer, if you think it might be a mythological monster and you shoot at it five times and hit it and it does nothing, take the hint. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.